listen You can hear their hearts beating Hello everyone, you're listening to American Indian Earwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. Wundani wasn't like other demonstrations that were going on. The ones for jobs or fair housing. Those were the civil rights protesters. They wanted to be equal, to be treated like everyone else. They were fighting to get into the system. We were different. We wanted out of the system. Today on American Indian Airwaves, the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee from February 27th to May 8th of 1973, a 71-day military standoff between members of the American Indian Movement, Native Americans, and the U.S. government. We'll speak with Kevin McKernan, director of the film From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, a reporter's journey about his rookie NPR experiences on his first assignment in covering the occupation of Wounded Knee. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. Two thousand twenty-three marks the fiftieth anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee from February twenty-seventh to May eighth. It is the outcome of over two hundred members of the American Indian Movement and supporters occupying Wounded Knee in the Lakota Nation or South Dakota in response to a call to action from traditional Lakota residents whose civil, human, and treaty rights were constantly being violated by corrupt indigenous government officials and the United States government. The Wounded Knee occupation resulted in a 71-day military standoff with government officials, the FBI, and quickly drew international and domestic support from people, organizations, and foreign governments throughout the world. Today on American Indian Airwaves, Marcus Lopez, executive producer of American Indian Airwaves, and myself have the honor and pleasure to speak with Kevin McKernan, who's director of the documentary From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, A Reporter's Journey. He was a rookie NPR reporter, and his first assignment was covering the armed occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota in 1973. He has the honor and pleasure to join us here on American Indian Airwaves in this two-part interview, which we begin with asking him how he arrived at Wounded Knee in 1973. Well, I was uh, a supposedly educated uh, college graduate who knew nothing about um, the Native side of American history. I was in St. Paul, Minneapolis. And there are many reservations uh, in Minnesota, and I was totally unaware of them, totally unaware of uh, 
of uh, treaties. Um, I had never been to South Dakota, never been on an Indian reservation. I certainly had never seen anyone shot or killed as I was about to uh, during that very long 10-week takeover of the village, the historic village of, of Wounded Knee. So it was all, I was a rookie, uh, very green and wet behind the ears and really doing my first major assignment for which I was terribly ill-equipped. So I was kind of a, a, a blank slate, a tabula rasa in a lot of ways, awfully threatened by the big names uh the reporters who came from Washington and New York and actually from other countries to cover this uh, one-of-a-kind resistance. And uh, I, just, uh, I just was learning the trade, I guess. And uh, that, that brought me to some startling observations. Um, I think it's fair to say that that 71-day occupation uh, is the greatest uh, resurgence, uh, greatest revival of Native resistance uh, since the 1800s. Uh, it was just an extraordinary experience for for all who were there, and especially for a non-Indian like myself, who was there without other reporters after the government gag order uh, banning reporters from covering uh, the resistance from the inside. And uh, so... I had to find a way to get in there once the FBI sealed off and they had hundreds of, of agents, hundreds of other agents with uh, the U.S. Marshals Service, uh, U.S. Border Patrol, uh, dogs, sheriffs, deputies. Um, it was kind of a magnet for law enforcement because no one had seen anything like this in their lifetimes and uh, they wanted to, uh, to snuff it out. And so they had a cordon around Wounded Knee, which was, you know, a, an area with uh, pine-studded hills and gullies and a place that uh, most people would, would not go because there was nothing there in, in terms of so-called uh, civilization. And so I had to find a way to, to penetrate this cordon around Wounded Knee and I was able to do so after the media ban only by going to a neighboring reservation about 80 or 90 miles away, the Rosebud Sioux Reservation, where a medicine man and his family had lived for generations. And they were, that was, his name was uh, uh, Henry and, and his son, Leonard Crowdog. And, and they were the, the keepers of the flame, you might say. They had kept tradition and language alive the, the first years of their lives. Uh, they didn't know any English, and uh, they inhabited a place called Crow Dog's Paradise, which I found out accidentally getting gas um, in the village, tribal headquarters village of Pine Ridge, across from the tribal headquarters building, the man who pumped my gas. Um, do you remember when they used to do that? They used to pump gas. And uh, he, he, it turned out, was a part-time medicine man. And, you know, we talked for about a half an hour after I got the gas. And I told him what I needed and couldn't do and uh, how I couldn't just drive down the road into Wounded Knee. We had been able to do that 
accredited journalists were allowed to come in and go out during the daytime prior to that. So I'd been inside Wounded Knee. But now that it was sealed, I couldn't do that. And this, this man at the gas station told me about Crow Dog's Paradise uh, on the neighboring Rosebud Reservation. And uh, he said that's the staging ground for guns and ammunition and smuggling and everything. It's all being directed from there. And so I made my way there and um, kind of did a stakeout outside on the road to Crow Dog's Paradise, um, which invited some of these young teenagers, teenagers with rifles to uh, offer at one point to castrate me. And, and that, that didn't happen. In fact, the, the senior medicine man, Henry Crow Dog, came out and gave them a short lecture saying, the spirit does not know what color this man is. And so eventually, and so that kind of eased the tension and I continued to camp in my car. At one point I was allowed to go in and uh, meet the um, leaders of the American Indian movement who were not in Wounded Knee, but coordinating things from the outside. And what they were coordinating was the smuggling of the material that I've just mentioned and, uh, and people as well. And they were sending a lot of people <clears throat> with supplies in on horseback. But recently, there had been many arrests, and there was some discussion about whether uh, that high profile in the woods was the way to go. But in any, in any case, they um, operated a kind of underground railroad on the reservation. So when I received their permission to go in, the rest was set up for me. And I didn't know where I was um, when I was asked to lie down on the floorboards uh, on the, in the back seat of a 64 Chevrolet and a woman named Irma Two Bears, who uh, was sitting in the passenger seat, who was about seven or eight months pregnant, and uh, a driver who, uh, who was part of this underground railroad, not her husband, um, at the wheel of the car. I just remember his name was Bert. And so they took me from Crow Dog's Paradise and uh, onto the Pine Ridge Reservation, some 70, 80 miles away. And I stayed one night there in someone's home, sleeping on the pile carpet in front of <laughs> the Johnny Carson show. Uh, you're probably not old enough to remember that, Marcus, or are you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, well... It, it, it was a strange thing for me because here I was um, in stranger's house and and I was trying to go to sleep because I knew I had a big day the next day. And there were a lot of Indians in the room and they were all laughing at Johnny Carson. And I kept saying to myself, don't they know how important Wounded Knee is? How can they be doing this? How can they be laughing now? <laughs> of course, it was, it was just another night, you know. And... Um, so the next morning, um, uh, Bert, the driver I mentioned, and Irma Two Bears showed up in their 64 Chevrolet, and back I went on the floorboards of the back seat, and away they went on a series of dirt roads for, I would think it would be m more than 40 miles. It was a bumpy ride, and they were watching for uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, BIA police cars, and at one point, one of them turned around on the road to to uh, give chase because he smelled something that was off, I guess, or he's just harassing these people. 
and they took off and they were able to lose them in a stretch called uh, the gooseneck where the dirt road makes 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 these great big series of turns in any case long story short we arrive in the village of manderson which is maybe eight or nine miles from wounded knee and there i was brought to a safe house of uh, traditionalists uh, lakota speakers and uh, asked to wait in the backyard which was an indian junkyard uh, with lots and lots of cars and so i i sat in one of those cars during the daytime until it got dark and then uh, they some older men um, probably above 50 or 60 they seemed really ancient to me came out and they told me they they built a fire and they had what i learned was called a sweat lodge and uh, i knew nothing about that and um, they asked me to come into the sweat lodge with them to take off my clothes and there was some snow on the ground and everything and i did so i just remember that they had sagging skin they seemed so old and of course they were younger than i am now and and so i uh, was invited into the sweat lodge and here i experienced strangers praying for my safety and it was an unusual experience because it gave me some idea that i was heading heading into some uh risky territory and then when they finished the sweat lodge and they were they were praying in in the lakota language they invited me into this a log cabin which had no electricity and uh, you know just a, an ice box and uh and uh, and and a, and a stove there and lots of little kids you know uh, on mattresses that had just been placed on the floorboards and they were eating government commodities they used to have these tubs from the department of agriculture that were uh, dumped on the reservation and they're spreading peanut butter and jelly on wonder bread i wonder if you're old enough to remember wonder bread marcus oh yes yeah well as you know wonder bread was not a wonder it was terrible it was like a, <laughs> like like a sponge you know and in any case um so i watched all this and and you know the dimly lit with lanterns and then the the men were speaking lakota at a table and they gave me gave me something to eat some soup and some coffee and uh talked about how they were they had an indian guide uh who would come from the other end of the reservation named chips and he would be the one who would take me in they thought it was too um it would be faster of course by horseback but i would present a bigger target and uh and you're listening to american indian airwaves we're speaking with kevin mckernan director of the documentary from wounded knee to standing rock a reporter's journey about him as a rookie npr reporter on his first assignment covering the armed occupation of wounded knee in south dakota in 1973 and now back to the interview the um FBI and the marshals were using uh, trip wires, which they had strung around the entire perimeter of the village. These were the same trip wires they were using at that time against the Viet Cong. And little did I know that the Pentagon was illegally supplying uh, federal agents uh, with the know-how and the equipment and the weapons uh, to fight this uh, paramilitary operation they were engaged in. And it was secret, 
because the Nixon administration did not want to disclose that there was a national emergency. Uh, uh, Nixon considered himself uh, a friend of Native people since he had had a, a Native uh, football coach at a Quaker university here in California and had been mentored by him. And so uh, this this man who was to be disgraced at Watergate and done, did a lot of things that I personally didn't uh, agree with had actually done more uh, for the reclamation of, of Native land and other other things than any other president before him. But in any case, he did not want the embarrassment of doing this, of the, of the United States military operating against its own citizens, which would have been fine and authorized by law if he had simply announced a national emergency. But he wanted to keep it secret. So that was the reason the military was there. And later, hundreds of cases against um, Indians were thrown out because of this violation. It's a violation of a statute called the Posse Comitatus Statute, which uh, was supposedly uh, designed to keep uh, America, U.S., from becoming a banana republic where the military operates freely against its own people. Well, in this case, this was going on. And that disclosure, that revelation afterwards was a scandal, and it led to the dismissal of all these cases. But if you just back up a little bit to that night when I'm sitting around the table, these guys were saying, well, can uh, Washichu walk that far? Washichu is Lakota for a white person. The actual translation is Washichu is the taker of the fat. And... Uh, and, you know, I didn't know how far it was that they were talking about. In fact, I couldn't understand most of what they were saying. They were only using some English here or there. And uh, it was decided at the end that, that the safest way to get a reporter in there, and they were very interested in having a reporter because the leadership at Wounded Knee was very worried that uh, once the press was out of there, there could be a second massacre. And, of course, the notorious first massacre had taken place some 83 years earlier in 1890. And so here on this uh, sacrosanct land where so much blood had been spilled, some, you know, two or three hundred um, civilians running from 5,000 combat troops that had been dispatched by the White House in, in, in that year uh, to stamp out their religion, the ghost dance. Uh, more about that if you want later, but back to the story of my getting in there. So I thought, well, gee whiz, here I am. It's, um, I better put on my reporter's hat and ask some devil's advocate questions of these guys, you know, or I'm, I'm never going to be a reporter. So I said to them, um, and they, 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 they understood, mostly understood English, and and I, I said to them, um, well, what do you think of this ragtag band called the American Indian Movement? These urban Indians who come down from another state, Minnesota, and come onto your reservation, aren't they causing trouble down here and division and so on? I'll never forget this, this, this old man who said to me in Lakota-accented English, I was American Indian Movement 1920. So that gave me a pretty good idea that um, this was something that had some deep roots, and it wasn't something that really 
was born in the 1960s. Uh, in fact, it w there were years and so many years of broken treaties and abuses and poverty and police brutality and so many things there that for, you know, almost a hundred years and this storm had been building and building as I would finally become educated and know myself. And the American Indian Movement aim was just the thunderbolt that blew open the storm, but it had been building for, for such a long time. So we set off at, at night, maybe about 8 o'clock, and uh, Arthur Chip's taking me through the woods and on my journey up and down uh, what they call in South Dakota a draws, which are just canyons and ditches and that sort of thing. And, of course, we did hit one of those tripwires, the kind that the military was using against the Viet Cong and uh, the North Vietnamese. And what happened then, I think it was I who tripped over this uh, tripwire and uh, released these um, flares that lit the area up above us um, just like noonday, uh, noontime. And, and that brought out... Um, the federal agents in in their jeeps and we they got so close to us we could hear them talking and they had begun to make a lot of arrests of, of smugglers going in with food and guns and ammunition and medicine and all that and um, they were achieving some degree of success so but lucky for us they did not get us and we saw them and heard them but they they finally drove away and we were much more careful not to trip a trip flare after that. So at some point, maybe it was 5 o'clock in the morning or something, it was very close to dawn. Arthur Chips, my, my guide, and I were looking down on some lights in what looked like a village. And, uh, and so uh, Chips said rather proudly, ah, finally, wounded knee. <laughs> and then he That said, is an incredible story, Kevin. And once you got there, what did you do? Well, I, I did tell you this part where my Indian guide tells me that's wounded knee, and then he, then he stops for a minute. He said, oh, check that. That's Porcupine, another village. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we, we finally did get in there. So when I got in there, um, this had gone on, you know, with the waiting at, on the neighboring reservation and the Underground Railroad and, and this long trek in. It's been going on for quite a while. And um, so when I finally got in there, I thought, now, well, okay, now what do you do? It was just impossible to, uh, to get out photographs except with a runner who might get busted, and then that film would be gone. And uh, they had one telephone at that time before the government cut that phone, and there was, you know, there were 40 people, it seemed like, at all times waiting to use that to call in and tell their families that they were okay or, or whatever they needed. So I did finally make one call to my radio station in, in St. Paul, maybe the most honest report I've ever made, because the they were live, and the man's name was Marvin Granger, and he, a good anchor at that station, and he said to me, so we have Kevin McKernan on the line right now, and he's at the village of Wounded Knee. Kevin, what would you tell the listeners what's going on? And and I said, uh, well, I I don't really know uh, <laughs> what's going on. 
you know, the Indians are saying that that the feds are coming in tomorrow and and using their armored uh, vehicles and gas and um, and then the feds are saying no, that's not true. We're not doing that. We just want to negotiate. So I said I'm hearing diff- two different sides, and uh, I really don't know what's going on. So I I think it was probably my most honest report because a reporter is never supposed to not know, right? You have to know. And even if you don't know, you make something up and you say this or that. So that was the last time I was able to talk to my station. And then there were a couple of months before we came out of there, before I came out of there. And when I came out, I came out in handcuffs. So, but it was the time in between that was uh, so amazing for me, uh, a stranger, you could say, in a strange land who didn't know very much, and I found it to be a great, um, a great education. And the film that I made that you mentioned, from Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, you know, some forty-some years of, of developments. Well, not the, the definitive story of Wounded Knee. It, it wasn't the native point of view. It wasn't the government point of view. It wasn't even the press point of view. It's really just what I saw myself and kind of my education and how lucky and honored I was to be welcomed into this community that was under, literally under fire where people were being wounded and, and a couple of people were killed. And I became a fly on the wall, uh, you might say. I was, you know, I was present for these historic negotiations where at one period of time for the period, it amounted to about a week the feds from the representing the white house and the justice department would helicopter in and they would sit there in in the round church or in the teepee depending on what was going on at the time and i got to sit there with my tape recorder a few feet away from them and watch something that they didn't want to have anyone watch um, that's you know they were trying to choke off the oxygen of of publicity. They thought that would kill. If you got the reporters out there, that would that that would stop out of there. That would stop the the occupation. And because the the American Indian movement in their eyes only wanted publicity, and so take away the reporters and then they'll quit. Of course, that they didn't understand what was really going on there. That for hundreds of of people who were searching for their religion and their culture, this was more than 10 weeks of, of practicing those uh, ceremonies and to some extent their language while exchanging gunfire with hundreds of these federal agencies. So that was what was most surprising to me. We think of Wounded Knee as being an example of violence and certainly there was an awful lot of shooting. Uh, Nixon's, President Nixon's attorney general, Richard Kleindeast, after the long siege, um, uh, testified that, that he estimated that 500,000 rounds had been fired into Wounded Knee. Bullets, bullets. And so at night we'd, we'd be at the hub and we'd see tracers coming 360 degrees from all these angles from the armored positions of, of the feds in the hills. 
Wounded Knee was kind of in the, in a saucer, and you could imagine the the hills around it made it a good a good target. And so, if you associate, and I think history in some ways does that, that this was a violent, militant, armed occupation. Well, I think that's true in in one as far as it goes. But for me, what I found out was that the center of the strength at Wounded Knee was a spiritual one, and that the ceremonies, are, those were the things that people were really there for. That was their hunger, and that had been deprived. Their religion had been proscribed, outlawed. I mean, if you go back to the massacre in 1890, those people were... Those victims were religious refugees who were killed for their religion, and they were practicing the ghost dance, which was against the law, and it was a nonviolent ritual, and and so forth. So religion was a very big deal. In fact, the first task after Wounded Knee was to get past uh, the Indian Freedom of Religion Act. That was the first of of many. Uh, of many uh, congressional acts that, that that took place after Wounded Knee. And I think one of the most uh, important things, because it used to, I've talked to people in, in our lifetimes who were secretly praying at a ceremony somewhere, and they had lookouts on the hills watching for the police cars because what they were doing was was against the law. And, um, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary story that I was introduced to, you know, when you, it's just beyond my ability to even capture, you know, that there were in the year 1500 thereabouts, there were some 18 million Indians in North America. And by 1900, there were only about, you know, 400,000 who were left. And so, and you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Kevin McKernan, director of the documentary From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, a reporter's journey about him as a rookie NPR reporter on his first assignment covering the armed occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota in 1973. And now back to the interview. They were nearly exterminated. There was nearly the final solution. And I know that um, that the famous uh, Nicholas Black Elk, who came and saw all those bodies on the ground the day after the 1890 massacre, he said, the tree of life is dead. And it will only, but, but he had another vision that it would be revived at some time. And so the medicine men who held these uh, Herculean number of sweat lodge baths every day, Wallace Black Elk, his great-grandson, and uh, Leonard Crowdog, they, they were telling us in the sweat lodge that this was the prophecy of Nicholas Black Elk in 1890, that the tree of life would spring back and it wasn't completely severed. And, he, and they, the medicine men would say to those inside the the sweat lodge, um, you are the people who are reenacting this. You are bringing, you are bringing this back. You are doing what, what Nicholas Black Elk said in his prophecy that it would, that it would come back. 
And that concludes the first segment of our program here on American Indian Airwaves. We were speaking with Kevin McKernan, who's the director of the film, From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, A Reporter's Journey. It's about his experiences as a rookie NPR reporter on his first assignment covering the armed occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota in 1973. The Wounded Knee occupation resulted in a 71-day military standoff between indigenous peoples and government officials and quickly drew international and domestic support from people, organizations, and foreign governments throughout the world. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of the Wounded Knee occupation from February 27th to May 8th of 1973. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and come back with our interview with Kevin McKernan on From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, A Reporter's Journey. Indian legislation on the desk of a do-right congressman Now he don't know much about the issue So he picks up the phone And he asks advice of the senators out in Indian country Darlings of the energy companies Who are ripping off what's left of the reservations <laughs> I learned a safety rule I don't know who to thank Don't stand between the reservations And the corporate banks They send in federal Bury my heart and wounded me Bury my heart and wounded me 
Buffy St. Marie, the song Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, here on American Indian Airwaves, executive producer Marcus Lopez and myself continue our interview with Kevin McKernan, director of the documentary From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, A Reporter's Journey. The film is about himself as a rookie NPR reporter on his first assignment covering the occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota in 1973. The Wounded Knee occupation resulted in a 71-day military standoff between members of the American Indian Movement and Indigenous peoples and government officials, which quickly drew domestic and international support from people, organizations, and foreign governments throughout the world. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee. And now back to our interview with Kevin McKernan, director of the documentary From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, A Reporter's Journey. Kevin, back at, back at Wounded Knee during the, like we just said, 10 weeks of the takeover or the re, reasserting their own responsibilities of Lakota people, how many, you found out later on, how many federal, state, local, and even the FBI and these different agencies were there to kind of give the public a flavor of it wasn't just a bunch of Indians against a police force, but it was really a military assault. Could you kind of unwrap that for us and for our listeners? It was definitely a military assault, uh you would see armored personnel carriers, the very ones that were at work in Vietnam at the same time, they were encircling the village and they had very heavily fortified bunkers. But the uh, the weaponry, the uh, the automatic weaponry, the machine guns, it was it was something that sometimes I would think that I was watching an old John Wayne movie or something because I'd never seen anything like this. And here it was in a place that was so distant from any anywhere else in a rural area. And these gunshots were only heard really, really by us and by them. And uh, I think that was a, a, a big, a big difference, you know, that this, the, the people in Wounded Knee had very small, you know, hunting rifles, um, 22s, <laughs> shotguns, and this sort of stuff. And at one point, the government sent um, sent F-4s, the um, the fighter the fighter jets that were at at work in Vietnam. You know, buzzed the village at 500 feet just to to scare people and to say, "This is what's going to happen to you," uh, just the way it's happened in Vietnam and in other countries. You can see those jets uh, in, in my film from Wounded Need a Standing Rock. So, Kevin, yeah. I, I, I wanted um, Larry to um, uh, weigh in on this, but, um, but Wounded Need, it just did not start just because people felt that way. But there was activity within the reservations, specifically Pine Ridge, and afterwards about what was happening what did you find out what the perimeter, what people's life was then? I remember that, but I wanted yeah. to tell what you f f found out 
about the reservation life, like you, you mentioned a little bit about commodity food and lifestyle, but yet there was a lot of violence in the reservations. Could you unpack that for us a little bit, if you, if you care to? Sure. Um, the organization that was uh, fighting nonviolently against the, um, the tribal uh, administration, uh, which had a great amount of corruption, uh, was called um, the Oglala Sioux Civil Rights Organization. And those letters, the, the acronym for Oglala Sioux Civil Rights Organization was OSCRO. So OSCRO staged um, weeks of protest against the administration for, um, for outlawing activities, for arresting protesters, for firing people from their much-needed tribal jobs, for going after political opponents and settling scores and so on. And the tribal chairman, Dick Wilson, had his, his private police force, which he called his auxiliary police, that were reportedly paid with federal anti-poverty funds. And this group was called the Goons, and they were proud of the term because they called it themselves the guardians of the Oglala Nation. And uh, the, the, my, my movie opens with my introducing myself at an at a illegal roadblock where court-ordered food and medicine and baby supplies and all that were ordered in by the federal court. And this group of goons and Dick Wilson, the tribal chairman leading them, um, stopped and, and took, and I filmed that they're, they're taking away the food at, at gunpoint uh, to go in. So there were a lot of, there were a lot of unhappy people who didn't like the way the reservation was being run. And for every, you know, $100 that came from Washington, supposedly to better the life on the reservation, you know, maybe a couple of dollars or certainly fewer than five actually ended up there. And Dick Wilson um, had a construction company and, uh, and that was uh, a no-bid uh, building that took place on the reservation, and his company got, got all of that. So at one point, these nonviolent demonstrators, civil rights demonstrators, tried to impeach him through the impeachment system, but he ended up presiding over his own impeachment, and of course, uh, he wasn't impeached. So at that point, Oscro the Oglala Civil Rights Organization, invited the American Indian Movement to come in. And mm -hmm. the American Indian Movement had been active in the area already because of the, uh, the killing of, of Indians in border towns to the reservation. And uh, so they decided then to, on February 27th, 1973, uh, they led a caravan of cars and had told had made announcements within their group designed to fool the informers who were many and were reporting to the feds that they were going to a powwow in the next town beyond Wounded Knee. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Kevin McKernan, director of the documentary From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, a reporter's journey about him 
as a rookie NPR reporter on his first assignment covering the armed occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota in 1973. And now back to the interview. So that headlight stretched for a couple of miles, and of course they turned off at Wounded Knee, and that's where the takeover began. Um, so yes, there was a buildup. There was a lot of, um, you know, the worst part of the goon violence against uh, Indians came after Wounded Knee, when the goons had, the goons had been sidelined uh, because of all the publicity about AIM, their arch enemy, and so it was payback time, and there was there was a reign of terror where there were dozens and dozens of killings, murders of traditionalists and of people judged to be pro-AIM, pro-American Indian movement. And in many cases, according to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, uh, the FBI looked the other way or did not do its job in, in fairly enforcing the law. And so most of these cases were, were never solved. And I do a scroll in the film of some of the people who were killed, including a young man I knew named Byron de Sursa, who was shot to death in broad daylight at the wheel of his car and bled to death outside the village of Juan Bli. I covered that. That was one of my NPR reports. Um, I started out working for a station called KSJN in, in St. Paul, and then I did a lot of reporting for NPR in the three years after Wounded Knee when, when I actually became a reporter uh, and wasn't just learning how to be one. Yeah, you're so right, Kevin. The uh, U.S. Commission on Civil Rights has formally concluded that the FBI and its goon surrogate, rather than AIM, were fostering a round a reign of terror on Pine Ridge. So afterwards, even even the 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 activity where a lot of the children and women were uh, not only the men but assaulted and it created havoc, literally havoc on not only Pine Ridge but the rest of it. Um, so what you're saying, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, which is not a radical organization, but they concluded that. Um, what, uh, and Larry, you, I know you had a question for Kevin. Yeah, I did. Thank you, Marcus. Um, you know, Kevin, I'm, I'm listening to you uh, talking about your lived experiences and what happened at the time. Um, I was wondering if, how, how much of what has been happening in, in the recent years uh, were part of your experiences um, while you were there. So I'm thinking of, you know, the occupation of Alcatraz from 69, you know, to 71, the trail of broken treaties, the occupation of the BIA office, and, and also the 20-point position paper that uh, Native American activist Hank Adams helped uh, draft and who was also a participant of the Trail of Broken Treaties, and this was drafted uh, before, right, the, the quote-unquote, the occupation of Wounded Knee. So I was wondering if you could, how much of that was part of the conversation is part of uh, the occupation of Wounded Knee? Well, Hank Adams, um, really one of my heroes, uh, was a key negotiator at Wounded Knee 
who sat in on all the negotiations between the traditionalists and the American Indian Movement and the feds, the White House representative, uh, Kent Frizzell, and the Department of Justice uh, representative, uh, uh, Richard Hellstern. And he, he was a, uh, an encyclopedia of information. He had been involved in the fishing rights cases uh, in the 1960s, uh, when and, and rose to some prominence there, at least within Indian country. And uh, it was a very smart, very reasonable, very cool man, and um, always soft-spoken and always carrying a, a heavy information. And so, um, yeah, he did those 20 points. He was very much involved in the Trail of Broken Treaties, which was only three months before the takeover of, of Wounded Knee. It was during election week in 1972. So there was this buildup that was going on, and really the the climax of that was at Wounded Knee. And it started, of course, in, as you mentioned, in Alcatraz in 1969, and had gone over in, in, in Minneapolis, the city I was living in. There had been the takeover of the Naval Air Station there. You'll have to remember that AIM was founded in 1968. So within those five years, things escalated pretty fast. There was a um, the first thing that the American Indian Movement did, which you know catapulted them to national attention, was to uh, create the AIM Patrol. These were old jalopies that uh, were painted with house paint on the side, the words AIM Patrol, and they faced off with police. And the police were famous and notorious in Minneapolis for knocking heads and for showing up at bar time, at, at closing time in bars, and tremendous violence um, against uh, against Indian people. And uh, I know that you know one interview I did. I think this interview is in the film too with uh, AIM co-founder Dennis Banks. He said there were there were two reasons that AIM was acting. AIM was AIM began in, in response to poverty and police brutality, those two things. And the police brutality was, was really considerable. Um, AIM co-founder Clyde Bellacourt, you know, told me that um, when he was arrested for having his high beams on in an alley uh, by, by three police cars, um, you get some idea of what was going on, and that got the criticism of the Minneapolis Star Tribune. It wasn't just, you know, radicals saying this is unfair. And Clyde told me about that encounter, that um, when he saw them, you know, when they, they put him in the police car, he had to leave his car in the alley, and they started putting on gloves. Uh, he knew he knew what was coming next. And, um, and back to Dennis Banks again, you know, um, Dennis told me in this 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 interviews in the film from Wounded Standing Rock. He said, "Aim was started by people who had fallen in the gutter and they couldn't get up, but they wanted to do something." And so these marches that took place after the Trail of Broken Treaties, the the murder of Raymond Yellow Thunder in Gordon, Nebraska, killings uh, in 
in in the Black Hills, and um, you know it just it just accelerated and accelerated to the point where Wounded Knee was was, was taken over. And, you, you know, know be- uh, Kevin, the uh, living that time and looking at all the different aspects of it, aim was just galvanized by all the. You talked about that, which I one it was interesting what that elder said about I was aim in 1920s. Now, it didn't exist then, but the settlement and the reaction of Native people by the the way this country was established, uh, and you implied that, but the for the elimination of the first people of indigenous populations and their different respective nations, and the expropriation of the land, which the 13 colonies started, and Larry and I always have discussions about this, but started with, and this is the only really nation state, but actually eliminated its people to get their land. And then within that, just like Elder says, since the treaties, whether before Laramie or Ruby Valley or the whole treaty or whatever treaties and agreements, the federal government has never recognized nor honor those treaties, number one. But secondly, I wanted your comment. When you heard this elder Sazami name since 1920s or thereabouts, what went through your mind? Well, I've, you know, I've just come from the 50th anniversary of, of, of the Wounded Knee Siege, and of course, I never thought I would live this long. But in the days that I spent out there in the last week um, were extraordinarily uh, emotional for me. So many people I knew then have passed on in these 50 years and were not there, but their children were, and the legacy was there. And to have my film shown, and I'm getting a, uh, the Reservation Theater texted me yesterday, and they said that they had 227 high school students come to the theater to watch that film. And that was, you know, there for me was the the success and the legacy. People are hungry for their history, uh, not just um, Native people, but everyone, because in many ways we've all lost our history and we keep reinventing the wheel. And here um, they they continue the practice there and they've passed it down to their children. And this, I think, this resistance continues to live on. And I think today, the biggest uh, beneficiary of that is the, uh, you know, there's some 500 reservations and on every one of those reservations, there's a land back movement where people are going to buy back, um, get back, uh, litigate back, um, be given back. The moment of silence is over. And that was Kevin McKernan, director of the film For Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, a reporter's journey about his life experiences as a rookie NPR reporter covering the occupation of Wounded Knee of 1973. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee. Tune in next week for part two of our interview with Kevin McKernan. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest, Kevin McKernan. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Buffy St. Marie, and the band Blackfire. 
American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. And the blood never comes clean from their guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains. Silence is over.